Why don't we try to go today? Anybody would be uh, against that idea? Let's go see the king. That'd be great. Thank you, choir. What a peppy, energetic song that was. It's almost time for choir robes, isn't it? Almost. Getting there? Okay. All right. I, I have already heard Bible verses this morning. And see, you can do that. You could even sneak up when nobody's looking and say, I'm going to say a Bible verse. Uh, I would be glad to hear Bible verses anytime you want from the book of Daniel, because I'm encouraging that. Maybe this week you read through the book of Daniel, and you'd like to be added to our tally. Uh, anybody this week read through the book of Daniel? We've got one, two... Did I miss anybody? Three. Thank you for showing me that. Three more. That's 70. We're going for 75. There's five of you out there somewhere. We need you. All right. Uh, one verse for each chapter to summarize the chapter. Twelve words. Anybody have that for us today? No, I see you. Okay, well, we still need about 60 more people to do that one. We've got 15 so far. Love to hear that, if you would. And then memory verses. I've heard one already this morning. Anybody else have Bible verses? Uh-huh, okay. Well, we got 22 so far. You want to be part of that? We'd encourage it. Because I'd like to have you in this book during the week. Uh, we're learning a lot about what the Lord has in store from this uh, vision, this dream that Nebuchadnezzar had in chapter number one, or chapter two, and that's where I want you to be, chapter number two, the book of Daniel, as we talk again about being uncompromising it's the way we ought to stand. That's what Daniel did in his life. He had a resolution to follow God and obey him regardless of the consequences of living in a pagan world. And that's what we're also trying to learn from this passage. How can we, too, live that way in a world like ours? Well, we must trust God regardless. And that's what I keep emphasizing here. And we're in that prophecy section the part of the statue where he's explaining its relevance and what it's all about. And, and I do believe very much that these words are relevant to us today. We're not just reading a 2,600-year-old uh, book. We are reading about God's word, and it's a message we have to hear. But it's not a message about the church. It's not written that uh, we could learn about church, it's that we could learn about God's people. And God has a plan for them. And it will be uh, brought to pass just like he promises. Regardless of what you read in the news this morning, uh, God's plan will work because that's what he has set out to do. We're living in the times of the Gentiles. It's been going on since 600 B.C. And I'm hoping it's near the end. I really do hope it's near the end. Uh, but uh, in the time of the Gentiles uh, involves four kingdoms. The kingdom of Babylon, the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians, the kingdom of Greece, and today we will add one more. The fourth kingdom will begin our discussion today. It is the kingdom that we're going to call Rome, and these kingdoms will endure until the kingdom of Christ is established. That is coming too. Um, we will talk about that soon because that's coming up in our study, and Daniel covers that several times. Uh, but we have another part of the statue to discuss today, and that's the part that uh, deals with what we call Rome. So let's pray first. Heavenly Father, guide us in our words today. Capture our hearts, we pray most of all, and bring us before your throne, and let us see that you are God that you are God, and we submit to that. We submit to your word, 
We are here to learn from it so that we might trust you more and serve you better. So guide us in our thinking today and do your work in our heart, which you want to do. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. When we start talking about uh, this fourth kingdom, and in a few minutes I'll just have a, a couple of slides to put up on the screen for you to see. But uh, we're living in the time of the fourth kingdom. That is the last kingdom that is referenced before the kingdom of Christ. The kingdom of Christ has not come yet. There are some who teach it has, but it has not come yet. And I will show you that as we walk through these things. We are still in the fourth kingdom. And this is the last kingdom that will be standing when Christ comes. According to what we read in scripture, uh, it will be just like all the other kingdoms that have gone before, standing in opposition to the Lord God and with a human quest to control the earth. But scripture makes it very clear, and it's true to this day. Blessed is a nation whose God is the Lord. God will not rescind that statement. <laughs> it is true all the time. Abraham Lincoln once said, It is the duty of nations as well as of men to own their dependence upon the overruling power of God and to recognize the sublime truth announced in the Holy Scriptures and proved by all history that those nations only are blessed whose God is the Lord. What we are receiving in our study of Daniel is the panorama view of God's plan with the overarching work of the times of the Gentiles. We're going to use that term. But what it does, as I have emphasized and will continue to do so, it shows us that man's government is insufficient, it is weak, it is limited, and it cannot endure. It cannot endure. We cannot place our trust for our salvation, for our eternal life, for all that the future speaks of in God's word, it's not on some government program that can give it to you. Only Christ can. Only he can. That kingdom is coming when our Lord will reign on this earth. And all the kings and all the kingdoms will bow down to him. Philippians chapter 2 says it so well. Where it says, every, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's a promise that the Lord will keep. So are you ready to read? Let's go into our passage here, and let's look at what Daniel has to say. Work your way down to verse 36 today. These are the visions that were given to Daniel in explanation of the king's dream. We have to understand them from Daniel's viewpoint. It's about Israel. It's not about the church. It's not about the rapture. It's a lesson on faith and trusting God when the world is ruled by heathens. So understanding that, we start in verse 36. This was the dream. Now we, say, uh, now we will say its interpretation before the king. You, O king, are the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom the power, the strength, and the glory. And wherever the Son of Man inhabit, or the beast of the field, or the birds of the sky, he has given them into your hand. He has made you to rule with power over them all. You are the head of gold. But after you, there will arise another kingdom inferior to you, then another third kingdom of bronze, which will rule with power over all the earth. Then let's focus here. Then there will be a fourth kingdom as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron crushes and shatters all things. So like iron that breaks in pieces, it will crush and break all these in pieces. In that you saw the feet and the toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it will be a divided kingdom. But it will have in it the toughness of iron, inasmuch as you saw iron mixed with common clay. 
as the toes of the feet were partly made of iron and partly of pottery, so some of the kingdom will be strong, part of it will be brittle. And in that you saw the iron mixed with common clay, it will combine with uh, another, one another in the seeds of men, and they will not adhere to one another, even as iron does not combine with pottery. This kingdom gets more attention than all the others in the description of what is happening in this, in this passage. There are four kingdoms here. Let's, let's look at our picture one more time here. I'm going to move over this way just for a second. And we have already three kingdoms before us. That where it won't fall. Kingdom number one is the head. It's made of gold. Babylon is its identity. The passage tells us so. And that's uh, a kingdom that lasted. Now, it lasted longer than this, but as to its focus of what Daniel was presenting from about 605 to 539 B.C., that was uh, predominantly Nebuchadnezzar's control. And that's when Babylon was at its strength. So that kingdom came, that kingdom fell. Second kingdom in verse number 39 is the chest of silver, the arms of silver. It's the Medes and the Persians. Their kingdom would last almost 200 years, 539 to 531 BC. Uh, that kingdom has its rise, that kingdom has its fall. A lot of the Old Testament was covered in that period. A lot of the ending of the Old Testament covered in that period. Verse number 39, kingdom number three, which represents the thighs of, uh, and the, yeah, the, thighs of the uh, statue in bronze, that is the kingdom of Greece. We talked about them last week. They would last as long as Alexander the Great lasted. The kingdom came into pieces after that, and there was, there's a history yet there, but from 331 to 323, the influence of the king, uh, Alexander the Great. Uh, we will be back to the second kingdom and the third kingdom a great deal in the book of Daniel. An awful lot of the book of Daniel involves those two kingdoms. Today we're going to look at the feet and the legs and the toes, and that's a kingdom made up of iron and clay, and it involves verses 40 through 43. This is the fourth kingdom, and it's not labeled up here as to what it was. They didn't know back then what it was. They couldn't have even guessed what it was. Uh, that would be about 400 years after Daniel, and unless the Lord had actually named them, which he did, by the way, with Greece and the Medes and the Persians, but he did not name this one. And he doesn't name them all the way through the book. History will name them pretty clearly. And we will see that as we get further into chapter number 9, especially, that there's no doubt whatsoever the kingdom we're talking about. It goes by the t name Rome. It goes by the name Rome. The Roman, Roman kingdom that we're going to look at here. Now, there's several significant characteristics of this kingdom uh, and its relation uh, to the statue and to what is happening on the scene. Um, this is a long statement, as we just read it together. Uh, I'm really more comfortable with this by saying uh, there are several things here that we're going to look at. Now, when I was taught homiletics, you were taught to avoid the word things. I like the word things. It covers everything I want it to cover by using the word things. But in outlines, they say, don't use the word things. And so I said, okay, this is what I'm going to have to do then, change my words. I obviously didn't do well on that part of the test, did I? Several significant characteristics of this kingdom. Uh, number one, it is the fourth kingdom. It is the fourth kingdom. And you may say, well, yeah, that's pretty obvious. Let's go with the obvious, okay? It is the fourth kingdom. Uh, each one is identified in an order by which they are to come. As Daniel's perspective is, this one, and then this other will come after that, and then another would come. And so we're following a progression here. Uh, verse 40 says, then, that's in contrast to the rest, but then, now the next is, there will be a fourth kingdom. Uh, so we're using words after and another and then and such like that just to follow that these are kingdoms that follow one after the other. Looking back at history, we can easily march this through our, our history books and see the rise and, 
could see their fall. Second characteristic is that it's made of iron. The, the material that's identified in these legs are, first of all, those of iron. That means they're strong. Now, I grew up in northwest Indiana. You guys knew that. You could, if you can't, you could guess by my accent, maybe. Uh, but uh, I grew up in northwest Indiana. Uh, lived one mile off the shore of Lake Michigan. Where you look on Lake Michigan on a map and see it, just go to the peak of the bottom and go down about one mile and there I am. That's about where we grew up. Our town was called Portage, Indiana. And within a few miles was a city called Gary, Indiana. Uh, Gary, Indiana is where I was actually born. And so I love the song. And I could sing it for you if I wanted to, but I'm not. Um, but uh, Gary, Indiana is where I was born. My father worked in Gary, Indiana. My brothers worked in Gary, Indiana. My two aunts worked there. My uncle worked there. All of that work was related to the steel industry, the steel mills. I grew up in those. Matter of fact, back in our day, when I was in school, our schools were allowed field trips to the mill to see steel being made. I don't know if they even do that anymore, just for fear of the dangers that could go with that. We were given hard hats. We walked on catwalks along the actual heart of the mill, where we could see the activity going on from, from looking down inside the mill and see what's going on. Steel is made of iron ore. I think you knew that. But iron ore is a compound of iron, and then they take oxygen, and they take minerals, and they, they somehow mine it, and they, they process it in what they call a blast furnace. Uh, some of them are electric, and some of them are, are other materials that make them so hot. I've seen the blast furnace. It's like a giant jug. And it sits there, and they, they have these, this material inside of it, and they are heating it up to degrees you can't even fathom. And this, this ore is completely melted down inside of that jug. And as soon as it has melted to the point they want, they tilt that entire jug down and pour that liquid. And when it comes out, you're like, wow, it is red hot, a hot that I can't hardly describe except it looked very much like somebody was pouring the sun out of that furnace. And as they're pouring this liquid that probably would look more like a lava of sorts, it goes into a large chute and it eventually works its way going down these chutes into smaller and smaller channels until it either comes out as a long beam or a flat sheet that they roll up and put on the back of a truck and take it to Ford or Chevy or somebody to make the next car you're going to drive. It is quite an impressive scene to watch. And we were able to walk all along it to see all the various stages of that steel being made. And I remember this vividly as a kid. This is too big for me. The whole scene was overwhelming to see that process at work. You could feel it. You can hear it. It was just an incredible sight. Uh, many years later, I worked for a vending machine company. And uh, one of my routes was to the mill. Uh, and there was a shack at the back of the mill. And I was there to make sure that they always had enough coffee and snacks and certainly Mountain Dew. Uh, they needed that, apparently, uh, a lot of it. But uh, I had to take my truck full of all my vending supplies back to that shack at the back end of that area. They called that area slag. It was where the dross that was taken out of the furnace was to be dumped. And what they did with that, they had these massive looking, I, I guess they're like dump trucks, but I can't say they're exactly like dump trucks. They look like monsters, actually these massive vehicles that had bowls on the back of them. 
and they would dump the, the dross stuff into those bowls while it was still hot and red. And those big, big, big vehicles would come flying from the, the blast furnace area to this place called the slag and dump it there. They had a place designed for it. And that's where I had to drive. And if you can picture this for a minute, my truck, which was a decent-sized truck you could drive on the road, and everyone would give you great respect. The tires on these vehicles driving past me were twice the size of my truck. I can't even fathom to try to say, how does that look? It was very impressive to see the size of these vehicles driving around. And they told me it's one simple thing I had to do was make sure that I never drive in the path of one of them because they do not stop. And what you become is, have you ever seen an aluminum can run over by a car? That's what comes of anybody who gets in the path of these vehicles because they don't stop. Now, what I learned from that was, that was much bigger than me. I was impressed. I was impressed. When this passage said, strong as iron, I can't help but bring up experiences like that and say, yeah, it's more than just talking about a solid piece of metal that's heavy. The process by which it works and the things related to it, even in its manufacturing, is that which the passage says, it crushes and it breaks. And it breaks all of these in pieces from the context that we're looking at here, this item called metal. Okay, we're, we'll be through with this, Evan, so I won't go blind if I move back over here, I hope. But the, the context of what we look at here in uh, verse number 40 and on, it talks about this, uh, these being crushed. These are probably in reference to the other kingdoms and the things that they left behind. Whatever uh, the translation is that you carry about with you is, could be subdues or it could be bruises instead of the word crushes. Um, but we do know that Babylon and the Medes and the Persians were not defeated by Rome. They were defeated by Greece. But Rome has a way of taking pieces. <laughs> they take pieces from every society that they conquer. They, matter of fact, take it and they rename it and claim it for their own. For example, I kind of jokingly say this, but they couldn't come up with their own gods to worship, so they took the Greek gods and renamed them. Did that ever drive you crazy in school? You're saying, which name goes with which god? There's always two names for them. One is Greek and one is Latin. Or Romans. And so I always joke about that, that they couldn't even come up with their own gods. They had to steal Greece's gods and name them a different name. Uh, this fourth kingdom is labeled as one with a mixed kingdom. It's got legs of iron, feet and toes of clay and iron, verse number 41 says. That's not a good mix, by the way. Uh, and you know that too, just by the, the fact that these materials do not work well together. Iron is tough. Clay is brittle. Both of those are brought out in the text. Verse 41 speaks of iron and its strength and clay as its brittle nature in verse 42. What is this? Well, first of all, the whole statue is built from inferior materials as it goes downward and when you get to the bottom, you would think that it'd have to be the strongest of the materials to hold it up. And what do we have instead? Materials that are far inferior to the others. By the time you get down to the toes, you have something that is easily broken. It's identified as a mixture of the seed of men. Now, that's a very difficult concept to interpret. Commentators work with this. Uh, what we do see is materials from the first three kingdoms that were metals like gold or silver or bronze. But now, even though bronze is a, is a mixture, putting clay in the scene is a whole different thing. Whole different thing. The first three kingdoms had a precise government. 
a ruler, then another ruler, and so on, and we mark that in history. The fourth kingdom is a mixture of governmental concepts. You have democracies and dictators in this picture. You have a kingdom of mixed languages, and mixed races, and mixed religions, and mixed cultures. Some people think Daniel is making a reference to mixed marriages. Uh, one commentator stated, the final form of this kingdom will include diverse elements, which this refers to race and political idealism or sectional interest, and this will prevent the final form of the kingdom from having a real unity. What is the cry that you hear all the time in our world today? Unity, unity, let's figure out a way to make that work. Of course, that means to get rid of all the elements that aren't unified, right? So that there's only one left that is unified. But the history of the Roman Empire is fascinating to me. It shows its strength as Greece is diminishing in those late 300s. And by the time Christ is born, the kingdom of Rome is well in authority. You notice that, don't you, when you read the Gospels? Even what led Joseph and Mary to walk to Bethlehem to be registered was because of the decree of Caesar Augustus. He was taxing the whole world. That shows their power. Over the years, we have seen the battlefields on one part of that kingdom versus another part of that kingdom. The dominance of the Roman church, we can mark that in history. Uh, it's quite significant. And yet their power is not something you can laugh at. It's very real. Historians give the date of about 395, some say 364 AD, to the split of the Roman Empire. Uh, that was the division between the East and the West, and many look at it now as a power struggle. They call it the balance of power today. Uh, for those who are trying to describe what's going on and how the East and the West are diverse and yet uh, hard to get along, and yet they belong to one another, and that's their definition of how they will not adhere to one another. Parts and pieces that don't work and don't fit. The Roman kingdom is spoken of as a kingdom. Oh, my knee just went out. It's okay. I won't fall. The kingdom of Rome is spoken of as a kingdom that Christ sets up before his own kingdom will crush it. Remember who's in charge of all this. The stone will eventually strike its feet. Leads to an understanding, perhaps, of these ten toes being emphasized. It's, I like this because we're always trying to figure out what do the ten toes mean? But we never ask what did the ten fingers mean when we talked about the hands. It's just ten toes are talked about here. And that the stone will strike it in verse number 45. We think, and we'll talk about this more, we believe that's a reference to a revived Roman Empire. And that's what scripture tends to teach us during the tribulational days. This kingdom is not gone. Matter of fact, it will gain its strength and its power once again. So we live in a time where unity seems impossible. Have you noticed? We live at a time when the world is, is being run in, in various ways. Power is defined by might and not necessarily by right. But we look forward to the fact that this present kingdom of our world has its final days. This is not the last of the kingdoms that go on into eternity forever and ever. It will have its final day too. Our hopes, I hope, our hopes and our hearts are set on Christ and not the kingdoms. You see, God has a plan. And that's what I like about all this from chapter 2, verse 21. You just back up a few verses. It is he who changes the times. It is he who changes the seasons. It is he who removes kings. It is he who establishes kings. So I restate this. We don't always know his purpose and what he is doing. Daniel certainly didn't know what these kingdoms were all about. But he was told just to trust God. You'll see that at the end of the book. Just trust God regardless. 
That makes me think of several things. I'll share with you something from my heart this morning as I've been thinking about these things. It says this kingdom crushes. It crushes. Historically, we have seen that too. A kingdom that can crush. Those kind of kingdoms, they get their respect by intimidation. That's what the Roman Empire was good at, intimidation. And people respected it because they feared for their lives. That would make sense, wouldn't it? That would make sense. In Hebrews chapter number 12, verse number 2, a verse and a thought came to my mind this morning. In relation to all this, and, and as I was, well, I was practically just waking up, and the Lord set these reminders in my head of verses I knew so, so well, and yet things that he wanted me to remember. I'm sure of that. In Hebrews 2, we have a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us. So let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus. Fixing our eyes on Jesus. When you speak about a Roman government kingdom that crushes, it's kind of hard not to notice it. Generally, it's loud, it's violent, it's vicious, it's demanding, it gets its way, and people cower, or people are just run over, flattened like little aluminum cans under the tires of the government. It crushes, the verse said. It crushes. When Rome attacked Jerusalem in A.D. 70. It was a violent thing that they did to destroy the city of Jerusalem. The book of Hebrews was written just a little bit before that. It talks about we have something better. We have something better. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Look to Jesus. You know very well that it was the Romans who crucified Jesus. It was their method. They stole that too. It was the Persians that started the idea, said, let's try this out. And a little bit of Greek influence went into that too. But as I say in history, it was the Romans who perfected it. One of the strategies they had in their day to crush another person's uh, morale, to crush their country, to crush their people, was to actually crucify the captives of the battle. And in AD 70, when they conquered Jerusalem, they crucified the captives all around the city. Thousands of crosses went up. That was meant to intimidate the next town over, to show them that you must respect this army because they crucify, they crucify, they crucify. It's a horrible scene. It's a horrible scene. You already know that they nail a person to a cross, whether it's tree branches or however you want to describe that. There's variety in the thinking, but nevertheless, a cross. They nail him to a cross, and, and the point is that they're slowly going to wear it out while they're on that cross and be unable to breathe is basically what it comes to. And as we already know in Scripture, what they tend to do is break legs if they need to hurry up the process because then you can no longer push yourself up and get the air that you need to breathe. They have another technique, and we also see it in Scripture, that they run a spear into their side and puncture the heart, which would end somebody's life then, too. 
Another option they had was to take a club and beat them on the chest. Because breathing was so difficult, it could stop the heart. And then one other technique they would add to that is they'd light a fire underneath it so that even the oxygen they were sucking in was just smoke. It sounds all horrible, doesn't it? And it does, and that's what, that's what brings to my heart that passage in Isaiah 53, verse number 5, when it says that Jesus was crushed for our iniquities. Crushed, what an appropriate title for what the Romans did to him. He was crushed for our iniquities. I don't know about you, but that stops me in my tracks. Have you ever really considered the fact that Jesus died for you? What he endured for you and for me? It's hard to even swallow after a while thinking about it. That he would be willing to be crushed for me. This is a government he's going to overthrow someday that crucified him on that cross. And yet he went there for me. He went there for you. He was crushed for our iniquities. I want you to turn to Luke 23 for a minute. Luke chapter 23. And I want you to look for a minute at verse 34. By that look for a minute, I mean look at it. Look at it. Can you see it? You see those words? Who is Jesus talking to? His father? Who was he talking about? The ones who were driving nails through his hands and through his feet. The ones who were mocking him. Religious people standing below, shouting at him. Thieves next to him on a cross, mocking him. Father, he said, before I go any further, I want to ask you something. I want you to think about this carefully. Does the Father answer the Son's prayers? All right? This is his request. Father, forgive them. Forgive them. Do you think that the Father forgave them? I'm not trying to paint you into a corner. I'm not trying to do that. That was the request of Jesus Christ as he was being crushed for our sins. I wonder if the them might have been me too. Might have been us. We who also contributed to that death, didn't we? Don't we all have a part in that? He died for our iniquities our sins. Father, forgive them. Those words are incredible to me. He didn't ask them down below to do anything. He didn't plead with them to consider their ways, to shape up, to clean up. He didn't tell them to do anything. He just said, Father, forgive them. There were no qualifications put on it. 
He didn't say, Father, forgive them if. And then add anything behind that. He said, Father, forgive them. You may say, okay, what, what's, what's the point? When the Lord taught his disciples how to pray, remember there's a little passage in there, and I have to confess as a kid, I didn't like it at all. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. <laughs> for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Literally, I did that every time we said it in church. What did I leave out? You heard it. You know it. Forgive us as we have forgiven others. Oh, no. You want to know how to forgive? It's right there. It's what Jesus has done. On a cross, he is getting crushed for our iniquities. And the words he says is, Father, forgive them. Forgive them. In Colossians chapter number 3, I want to show you something else. Colossians chapter number 3. Go over to verse uh, 13 for a minute. I want you to see this. No, I'm going to back up verse 12. Verse 12. Paul writes, So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another. What's the next four words? You see them. You're looking right at them. And forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone. And now this is the part that strikes me so hard. Just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. When I was reading that last phrase especially, so also should you. My little concordance popped up, and it used a Greek word, dei. D-E-I is the way you spell it. It is the word for it is necessary. It's not an option. These are not optional things. Matter of fact, to be one who is bearing with one another and one who is forgiving each other, those are what we call participles, present participles, which are ongoing characteristics that we should wear, that we should always look like. If somebody was to identify us and they identified us as, you know, that, that guy with three arms or, or, you know, something like that, recognizable traits, we'd say, well, that's kind of odd because that's not how we normally identify somebody. But participles are what people see in you. And what we're called to is to be like our Savior. Just as, just as, do you see those? Just as, just as Christ has forgiven you. So you should do. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is a perfect bond of unity, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, which indeed you were called to one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. This is necessary the text is saying to us. 
This is necessary. And when, when Peter writes, he says, and he was reviled, and yet he didn't revile in return. That's amazing in our day and age, isn't it? When they hurled abuse at him, he didn't respond that way. Matter of fact, Peter says, we are to walk in his steps. We are to follow his example. We are to do it like he did it. And I have to confess, when I read these words, I look and say, Lord, you know I'm so far from that. <laughs> because my heart is not prone to go down that road. It's a spiritual thing. As one commentator said many years ago, the more spiritual it is, the more apt we are to jump away from it. Forgiveness is tough. Maybe that's why we see its picture on a cross. Maybe that's the best display we've ever seen of what forgiveness looks like. But why am I on this point? Because I remember many years ago when I was a student at Moody Bible Institute, Dr. George Sweeting was our president. A pretty wonderful man, great speaker, humble man. Some of you might have heard of him or even saw him at times. Uh, but he was an evangelist. I'm not saying that in a negative way. I'm saying he was an evangelist, an excellent evangelist. And he had a great presentation. And we got to see it once or twice. Um, he was an artist. And he would come up to the stage, and he had an easel, a blank easel on the page. And he would use some sort of chalk to start to draw a picture as he was speaking to us about the gospel. And as he's talking about all these things, he's painting this beautiful scene in front of us with the chalk. He, he, I can't even remember all they were. There were houses and things like that. And we're like, I mean, Thomas Kincaid kind of things, if you will. The whole thing was a beautiful, beautiful picture on the page. And as he's drawing that out for us and talking about the gospel and he's talking about our needs and he's talking about us as people and all these things, he stops at a point. And he reaches up, and above that easel, he has some sort of a light. And I don't know what it was, a black light or whatever it was. But he clicked it on, and everything on the page disappeared, except for the image of a cross that he had a special chalk to draw that into the picture. I remember that as, as a student there, because his next words were so clear. We sometimes put our focus on so many things when all the while it should be on Christ. It should be on Christ. And more times than not, I try to solve things on my strength. When all the while he says, be like me. Do it my way. Forgive like I forgive. Bear with one another as I bear. Be humble like I'm humble. Be gentle like I'm humble. Be patient like I'm patient. And that strikes me at the heart every single time. Because so often it's not the way my heart wants to go. In this context that we are looking at in Hebrews, I mean in Daniel, the whole point over and over and over is what? Trust God Regardless, we're living in that fourth kingdom. It's still a mess. It's still a mixture. It's still disunified. It gets into our system. It gets into our lives. It gets into our churches. It gets into our communities. We feel it and we see it and we read about it every single day. And what does scripture say? Trust God regardless. <laughs> Right? It brings us back to that simple thing. Look unto Jesus. He is the author and the finisher of your faith. Is that true? There is no other answer to these four kingdoms but Jesus. There is no answer to any issue that's on your heart, whether it's big or it's small, but Jesus. When this passage stands before us, it stands before me, and it, it, it works on my heart every single time. I want to be like him. I want to be like him. I want to do it his way. That's the only thing that lasts. And I want to trust him regardless. How about you? I know I just took an extra minute or two. Ten. Sorry. 
your casserole is burnt, I'm sorry. But this is what I woke up to this morning. Why, I don't know. But it was on my heart, because the verse just pops out in front of me. And I said, Lord, what do you want to show me here? And what he showed me was a mirror. He said, are you trusting me? Well, of course, I'm a pastor. Are you trusting me? Are you going to do it my way? Are you going to walk my way? Are you going to do as I did? Boy, does that hit hard. That hits hard. I would, I would encourage you to spend some time in those passages, too. I read them through for you this morning. But go into Colossians 3 and just soak it in. And look at those words again. Those bring me back to this point. I need to trust him. We live in a day when an uncompromising person is hard to find. Let's be those kind of people. Let's be those kind of people. Our world needs it desperately. And you know it. I do too. Heavenly Father, with these words in front of us here today, a kingdom that can crush and break to pieces, a kingdom that demands respect, that demands obedience, that demands that the world bow down to them, such a kingdom will not last. We have seen it in the passage. It will not last. Though we live in it, and we see it, the results, the characteristics, all the goals of that kingdom are all around us even now. And we see it. It has shaped us, Lord, in a, so many different ways. In the way we do things, in the way we think, it's worked into our attitudes, it's worked into our actions, it's worked into our goals as well. Sometimes, Lord, we're very quick, I know I am, to set the eyes on the wrong thing and not to set them on you. Lord, today, if you will work in our hearts to show us that, like Daniel needed to trust you in his day, we need to trust you in our day. We need to walk the way you've called us to walk, in an uncompromising way, where we will trust our God, we will obey him and follow him regardless of what the world may think or anyone else around us. We want to serve you, Lord. We want to be like you. Work in our hearts, we pray. Work patiently like you always do, but work deliberately to make us more like Jesus today. We pray in his matchless, wonderful name. Amen.